1: Hey everybody, I want to talk to you about Squarespace Courses. It has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. You can create engaging content your audience is going to love, then simply add a paywall and set the price. Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace Courses. So just go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use our offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's
0: How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W., Charles, Chuck, Wayne, Chwain, Bryant, <laughs> And there's Jerry Jerome Rowland, the Rizzy, Uh, and I'm just Josh. Like, just Jack was just Jack.
1: Wow. Okay. That's a heck of an intro.
0: Thank you. Let's do a little jazz hands there.
1: Just call me Twain Twain from now
0: on. Twain. (laughs)
1: That's not awkward to pronounce.
0: It's really close to schwing. Remember that? Schwing. Oh, man. (laughs) I totally forgot about it until just now. Schwing, Chuck. Schwing. Swing.
1: That's how you have to say
0: it. No, you can say it anyway. Like, schwing.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, what I really love is that we're talking about uh, (laughs) America's first woman physician, an amazing woman named Mm -hmm. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who had an amazing family, and her story is incredible. And we're saying schwing. Schwing. At the beginning.
0: Right. Especially considering that she was a... um, a, uh, rather puritanical person in a lot of senses she would probably not have been down with us saying schwing
1: no no because you know what uh she and her family were quakers Mm -hmm. and i know some quakers and have known some quakers
0: they hate schwing
1: they do but you know what they love what being awesome
0: yeah yeah no i mean for sure um, th- th- this, this, I-, I get the impression that her entire family is a pretty good example of like a, 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 a like a, a Quaker family. Dude, Quaker, every Quaker I've known
1: has just had it like, had it all figured out. It seems like they're like the, the Buddhists of the West.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. They also, um, I think they also go by the society of friends, which says a lot too. If Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And then if you'll remember correctly, Charles, our pacifist episode focused heavily on the Quakers because they're big-time yeah, pacifists man. too. So Elizabeth Blackwell, just by virtue of having been a Quaker, was a, a pretty interesting, like, upstanding, upright uh, person with, with a good head on her shoulders. But she also, like, individually, personally, was a, a, a very amazing person. And not just the fact that she was the first licensed woman physician in America. Yeah. Um, but to get there, she really had to blaze her own path and put up with a lot of, uh, BS, Mm -hmm. you might put it. Um, and, and so much so that even in her, um, her autobiography, which was published in 1895 when she was in her seventies, I think, um, she called it pioneering work. Um, And that was, there's really no better way to put it. She was absolutely a pioneer in not just getting herself established as a a woman physician in America, but in making it so that there could be more women physician in America, physicians.
1: And more. And more. Much more. So let's start with, oh, I don't know, February 3rd, 1821.
0: What's significant about that date? She
1: was born as a little baby uh, near Bristol, England. She was the third of nine children. Uh, Her mom was Hannah Lane, who uh, came from a a family of merchants who had some dough. And her pops was Samuel Blackwell. He was a sugar refiner and also prosperous. And like we said, they were Quakers, uh, which means that they were... Very cool. They were not – and this was 1821. They were not down with slavery. They were activists against slavery. Yeah. Uh, they were abolitionists. They supported women's suffrage. Um, her brother, Henry, uh, married Lucy Stone, who was a very famous women's rights activist. Mm-hmm. Her little sister, Emily, followed in her footsteps in medicine. Yeah. Uh, her sister-in-law, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, first female ordained minister in Protestant uh, the Protestant denomination. Yeah. They were way ahead of their time.
0: Yeah, and you can trace, I mean, both of her parents seem to be pretty cool. Um, And you can trace their, um, the roots of of their sensibilities back to their parents. Like um, Samuel was a dissenter. Like he was a Quaker, which is, I guess, a form of Protestantism. But he was definitely, he didn't recognize like the sole religious authority of, say, like the Church of England or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And so as a result, his children could not go to public school. He said, fine, I've got some money. I'm a prosperous sugar merchant. Uh, I'm going to hire the best tutors I can find. And not only that, I'm going to defy the conventions of England and have these tutors teach my daughters the same stuff that uh, they're going to teach my sons, which is unheard of. But that really formed the basis for especially Elizabeth's progression and education that she she came to expect to be taught just like she was a boy um, because of how she was raised.
1: Yeah, and, you know, by all accounts, her parents are both pretty great. Her dad was a very caring individual. He thought that all kids of uh, any gender should reach their full potential. Sure. Uh, he didn't physically punish his kids, which was weird at the time. People are like, why ain't you hitting your kids? Yeah. And he said, I don't believe in it.
0: I've got a switch right here you can borrow. Works yeah, he's, really well. Do you not
1: have a switch? <laughs> That's what the deal is. He doesn't have a switch or a he's paddle. switchless. Let's get him a switch. Uh, so he, you know, they would have sort of like a demerit system in their house. And if you added up to uh, too many demerits, you would have to do something like eat by yourself in the attic or something. Right. Uh, that sounds horrific also, like sticking a kid in a closet. But I think it was just a, a room removed from the family dinner.
0: Yeah, it was just you have to go away from the family. We can't even bear to look at you. You make us want to puke. That's
1: right. But everything changed when he lost his sugar refinery in a fire and said, you know what? Let's pack our bags and let's move to New
0: York City. New York City? That's right. New York City. Hey, do you remember back in, I don't know, like... Around 2007, 8, I feel like it was right when we both started working around how stuff works, that a sugar refinery in Savannah blew up. Yeah, I remember that. I wrote an article about that. It's like that sugar dust is yeah. is volatile. It can it totally. can catch fire. And I wonder if that's what happened to his sugar refinery. I betcha. Okay. So they moved to New York. They lived in New York and in Jersey for six years. As you do. Yeah. And uh, one of the cool things that, that I liked about him... He was he was a little paradoxical. So he was a sugar refiner. He made his money off of sugar refining. But the sugar industry was based almost entirely on slave labor around the world. That's how sugar cane was grown. That's how he didn't use slaves. I can tell you that. But he still made his money in an industry that was heavy, heavy on slavery. And in fact, his children were such staunch uh, abolitionists, even as young children. They refused to eat sugar because they knew that slaves uh, had had a hand in producing it. So they wouldn't even they wouldn't even eat it as kids. Little kids wouldn't eat sugar because of, of the slavery. Uh, involved. Um, But he still made his his money off of that. But um, when he got to America, one of the first things he tried was to um, introduce sugar beets, which don't require slave labor. It's a much less labor-intensive process of extracting sugar from sugar beets. And this was really revolutionary at the time. Like, they think they first isolated sugar from beets in 1800, like 30 years before. And they had been introduced to America just like two years before he he took this up. So he was on the cutting edge of of uh, sugar beet production, but it didn't actually work out very well.
1: No, um, he his original sugar refinery went um, went south in 1837. So he said, "Let me move to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and I'll get in on on the sugar beet thing." But yeah. just a few weeks after they got to Cincinnati in August of 1838, he died of a fever. And because he had lost that sugar refinery and didn't have the next sugar beet operation up and going, they didn't have a lot of dough. His family was um, left without a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Which, I mean, that's got to be really tough to go from wealthy to not, you know, in just one fell swoop. But that's kind of what happened with Elizabeth's family. And um, a few years later, she resolved and she was 21 that she would not be dependent on any man. That she was going to be self-sufficient and she was never going to marry and she wanted to make her own way. And, I mean, it's pretty tough not to trace that line directly back to, you know, the the state that her father left his his family in. Um, Not in any way that, you know, that was uh, his own doing or his own fault, but that was just the conventions of the time. And so for a woman to to resolve that she would make her own way in life was very unconventional, but... If, if Elizabeth Black was anything, she was very unconventional. That's
1: right. So she and her mom and a couple of her sisters, they uh, were teachers for a little while. And she eventually, and we this is kind of jumping ahead a bit, but she, she did adopt a girl, a seven-year-old Irish immigrant orphan uh, that she named Kitty. Her name was Catherine Barry and went by Kitty. And she was with her for the duration of her life, but she never got married. And she decided to become a doctor... When she had a really close friend who was dying, said, you know what, I I think that I w- might have lived if I might have had a woman as a doctor because they're more compassionate and I might have gotten better treatment. And yeah. Elizabeth Blackwell was like, whoa, that really speaks to me.
0: Yeah, they, uh, they, they think that the woman was probably dying of uterine cancer and she thinks that she would have she would have disclosed more of her condition, possibly mm-hmm. sooner. And at the very least, she would have been more comfortable in her dying days being treated by a woman rather than poked and prodded by some man. Right. Um, who who seemed to be less compassionate than she believed a woman would be. The the thing about Elizabeth Blackwell is she, first of all, she was struck by this. And she was so struck struck by it that she it moved her to want to become a doctor. But not only that, she had to overcome a natural deep-seated aversion to the idea of the body or anatomy or medicine. Like she was not at all interested in this to begin with. And in fact, she had an aversion to it. But she was so moved by that woman um, and her experience that she resolved to overcome her disgust and her aversion at bodily functions and anatomy and become a doctor herself. It's pretty, I mean, that's a really key detail it is a huge leap. I mean, that's enormous. Like, not only she, she, like, she just wasn't a kid who wanted to be a doctor,
1: right? Like, I love she, the sight of blood and internal organs, so this yeah. kind of fits anyway.
0: Yeah, she had to overcome an aversion to it, on top of overcoming the aversion that society had against a woman becoming a doctor, because at the time, it was it was considered that a woman couldn't know enough about the human body to be a physician and still be considered a morally upright woman, that her morals were at risk of being corrupted right. just by knowing everything there is to know about the human body.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. They, they would have to see a male penis yep, a as part pee-pee. of their training. Sure. A PP. <laughs> so, oh man, we're such children. We are. So she said, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get over this. I'm going to be a doctor. How do I do this? I'll just go to medical school. Medical school said, no, 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 no. Women can't go to medical school. Right. Um there are a few ladies around the country that are unlicensed physicians that worked as apprentices and learned their trade. But um you're not going to go this traditional route. And, and medical school at the time was just weird anyway, which we'll get into a little bit later.
0: But we I mean we also got into it in our grave robbing episodes. Yeah. This is similar to that time oh, as totally around that time.
1: It was crazy. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't the, the, I don't think doctors were as respected back then even.
0: No, they, they uh, no, because they were the ones who were, um, who were cutting open bodies and just kind of figuring stuff out as they went along and if you went to a doctor there was like an 80% chance you were walking out one <laughs> limb short.
1: <laughs> yeah, so she, uh, while she was a teacher, she boarded with um, families and she did a lot of this stuff in the South, uh, which we'll get to as well, but Um, Two Southern physicians mentored her. Um, She still could not get into medical school, of course. She had some physician friends who were Quakers. She asked them about it. They said, that's a great idea. But no, it costs too much. You're never going to be able to get in. Um, What you should do is disguise yourself as a man and go to France. (laughs) And she was like, not a bad idea.
0: If that's the best advice somebody's <laughs> giving you, you need to rethink the people who you take advice from.
1: It sounds like she was game, though, but uh, she decided to save money instead and apply to medical uh, medical school in the United States. So, in today' dollars, I did the the uh, the old inflation calculator. Mm-hmm. Three grand back then would be about eighty five thousand dollars today. Yeah, so that's a lot of money, and she. Between, I think, for a period of two or three years, went south and taught school in slave states, uh, which was very hard for her to do in order to save money for medical school. But yeah, she fir- didn't know what she could get into anyway.
0: Right, exactly. And the first the first place she taught in Kentucky, she only lasted a year. She just found the social climate so intolerable. Yeah. Just, she, she was really, you know, she couldn't put up with it. And I don't know how she was able to better in North and South Carolina. But yeah, I mean, she managed in in two years to raise eighty three grand from teaching, I guess, rich kids in North and South Carolina, and she she um. But she also, while she was there, she's like, "Well, I want to teach the slave kids too. I'll do it pro bono," and they said, "Well, it's against the law for you to teach slave kids," and they said, "But you can teach them Sunday school." And she said, "Fine, I'll do that." And there was a great quote <clears throat> that came from her. Uh, in a letter to her family in 1845. And I'm not sure what state she was in, maybe even Kentucky. But she said, I assure you I felt a little odd sitting down before those degraded little beings, not saying they were naturally degraded, that they had been degraded by other people, I believe, to teach them a religion which the owners profess to follow whilst violating its very first principles. It says it all, doesn't it? It really does. She was like, you know, these people are profess to be christians but are do not treat other people like christians that's just such a a quaker thing to do huh
1: that is a very quaker thing to do
0: you want to take a little break yeah let's do it okay we're going to take a break everybody and we'll be back to tell you more about elizabeth blackwell's progress toward med school Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.
0: Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. So, Chuck, like you said, she um, was mentored by a couple of doctors who she she stayed with while she was teaching in North and South Carolina, one of whom was actually a professor of medicine. So he had all the books. He was very encouraging to her. Um, he taught her everything he could. And that was, like you said, a way that a woman could become a physician. But an unlicensed physician, um, certainly not one that was that was in any way established as an actual legitimate physician. And that was ultimately her goal. Yeah, like she
1: continued to get sort of uh, tutored by different people in the South that she knew who were physicians, mm-hmm. and it was great that these uh, these men encouraged her and tutored her. Said yeah. here, use my books. Um, but again, like you said, she wanted to do the real deal and and forge a path and not just kind of go the the, the back door route. So she applied to all the medical schools in New York and Philly. She applied to twelve more in the Northeast she was rejected by all of them and on the 30th application to geneva medical college in western new york in 1847 she was accepted and i say i raised my voice because she got accepted because it was a joke that uh well <laughs> everyone thought it was a practical joke the professor there the dean of the medical the uh, med school basically said hey let's take a vote here we'll have all the, the the men here that go here vote on whether or not a woman can come to school here and if uh every single person says yes she can come here and if one person says no she won't they all thought it was a prank from i guess the neighboring rival medical school so in they West said, Geneva Yeah they said sure let her in and it wasn't a joke and they did let
0: her in They they did um and apparently they were all very surprised. Like, this almost sounds like an urban legend, but from what I saw, like, this is across the board what happened. That they they thought it was a practical joke and it turned out to be real, and that is how she ended up going to medical school. Unbelievable. So when she showed up, she was taking this quite seriously. She was 26 already. She'd spent some time, like, living around, seeing the country. Um, just, she was 26. Like, that says a lot about a person over, say, like, 20 or 19 or yeah. something like that. And so she when she showed up, um, not only was she a little more mature probably than some of her contemporaries, she also um, was, she was well aware of the convention she was breaking, of sure. the challenges and the obstacles that laid ahead of her. Um, and there's a, a pretty good report, like the fact that she showed up at medical school made the papers, and in fact, the Boston Medical Journal even wrote up something about the fact this? that that she was, yeah, that she was there taking medical classes. The Boston Medical Journal said that she comes into the class with great composure, takes off her bonnet and puts it under the seat, exposing a fine phrenology. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you are talking it's, about the shape of her head. Yeah, yeah. But this is the Boston Medical Journal at the time. Hopefully, the BMJ has um, has officially. Uh, uh, stopped using phrenology, <laughs> yeah, in any way, shape, or form. But we'll have to we'll have to get a subscription and find out.
1: So we talked earlier about the fact that medical school at the time was really different. Um, it sounds like Animal House or something. Uh, it was very raucous. Uh, it's apparently, when there were lecturers, uh, you would make crude jokes out loud, mm-hmm. and no matter what you're talking about, it sounds like a bunch of children taking sex ed or something. Yeah. And and like the sixth grade. Yeah. But apparently Blackwell's effect on the whole like every class she went into was everyone took it a lot more seriously because she was there.
0: Yeah, because, again, like, if you were a man, you acted far, far, far differently around a woman um, at the time, where you were just much more genteel. It was just the social convention. And so you had to bite your tongue in uh, medical school if if, um, Elizabeth Blackwell was in your class, or you just did. That was just kind of the effect that she had on class just by being a woman. But even beyond that, there was this whole... View that, like, these guys were somehow contributing to this woman's moral corruption by even being in the same class with her, let alone being the instructor teaching her. Right. And so one of the things she ran into in med school was she would sometimes be asked to go step outside. Oh, sure. Because this particular lecture is a little rough. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth Blackwell did not truck to that at all. No, she no, was no. very adamant that, remember, she was educated like a boy by the tutors her father hired. She had a full expectation to be f- left out of absolutely nothing mm-hmm. at med school. She was to be a full physician, and so she was to learn everything that any physician would learn. And eventually, over time, she kind of overcame this genteel opposition to her presence by her professors and, and male classmates.
1: Yeah. And I think in no small part due to her serious take and her uh, fastidiousness and her uh, the fact that in the end, she graduated first in her class.
0: Yeah, this says a lot.
1: She was the best student in 1849. She graduated first, um, ultimately uh, earned the respect of her fellow students, not to say that it was a um, it was a cakewalk. There were still plenty of jerks there. Uh, and you know, a lot of them had animosity toward her.
0: Remember, a uh, cakewalk is racist. Is it really? Yeah. I remember, we did a we did a um, show on oh, what was it? I can't remember the um, like words that have different origins than you would think, or different meanings than you would think. You don't remember?
1: Yeah, I think I do remember that. I'm That's sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sorry for interrupting you.
1: That's okay. So it was no pie walk. <laughs>
0: Good save, Chuck.
1: Still plenty of jerks. Uh, there were some men there that um, would um, would laugh at her, some men there that would support her, some men that would jeer at her, some men that would help her out. But like I said, in the end, she she got that degree first in her class. Apparently, and I don't know if this is the movie version, but the, the medical school's dean uh, bowed to her when she accepted her diploma, and everyone busted out in applause.
0: Yeah, that's what a newspaper account uh, said who, uh, from the correspondent who was there. And they also added, and brother Bluto became Senator Blutarsky. <laughs> Very nice. That wrapped everything up. Do you think that movie ages well? We're talking about animal house again. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen it. In know what I should say. Sorry. In a, in a while. I'm not sure. Oh, uh, okay. Because... I have seen it plenty of times, but I haven't seen it in a while. I'm sure it doesn't.
1: It can't. Uh, I don't know, man. I think it's kind of timeless. Mm-hmm. um However, I've heard certain people that I won't name say it doesn't age well. Noel, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Noel doesn't think. You think there's a there's a raft of comedies from that era that just are not funny now.
0: Wait, not funny or uh, politically? Oh no no no! no. Not funny. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, it okay. doesn't age
1: well as in like why is this why do people think this is a comedy classic? It's not even that good.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, I'll have to watch it again. I haven't I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know, man. I
1: think it's kinda of timeless in its comedy. Okay. I mean sure there are parts that don't age well in every other respect like any comedy made before like four years ago
0: (laughs) sure that's what i or no like like the last five minutes (laughs) i thought that's what you were talking about no i I mean it's entirely possible because i've seen some comedies where i'm like this is this is not at all funny like spies like us give me a break
1: not good no i haven't seen it in a long time
0: it's not good
1: see now i'm afraid to watch some of those oldies
0: yeah you hate chevy chase though i do my dad taught me well (laughs) But if you uh, if, if you want to continue to cherish any movie that you used to love I would not risk it
1: no we'll see
0: unless it's Ghostbusters it definitely holds up friend
1: yeah that new one looks good
0: too uh, was the new one the the sequel sort of so it's technically Ghostbusters three
1: yeah or four I mean we or wait. Was there a third, or was just the first two? Yeah, the two, second one. There wasn't There was the that first
0: great. two, and then the third one had like Kate, was, I think Kate McKinnon. And yeah, all that it, was but the it lady reboot. In a different universe, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was that was just a reboot, which was great, I thought. But this yeah. new one is a sequel, many years later, and I think it's one of their grandkids. Um, you know, stuff God. starts happening. It looks good. Paul Rudd's it, in it.
0: Okay. Oh, there and you what's go. his
1: name's kid? Uh, Reitman's kid is directing it. It's a Oh, he's great. Jason? Yeah, it's a Jason Reitman jam. So
0: that's good stuff. Yeah. That, that might, he might be a little too high, high brow for a Ghostbusters movie. I don't know, man. Uh, well, hey, I can tell you, you know who's spinning in her grave right now about a thousand RPMs? Who? Elizabeth Blackwell. I know. I'm so sorry. Dr. Blackwell, should we <laughs> take a break? I don't know. Who knows anymore?
1: All right. Let's take a break and we'll stop talking about dumb old movies right after this.
0: Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.
0: Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. All right, so Chuck, I think where we officially left off... Um, Caddyshack? Elizabeth, Elizabeth Blackwell <laughs> received her diploma. Right. The uh, The dean of the medical school stood up and bowed, and the uh, auditorium broke out into applause, which is pretty awesome. Um, uh, apparently... She when she although she won over her classmates, there were still like a lot of women actually of the time who were not very happy with what she'd done. But she said, nuts to you guys. That's right. I'm gonna move to Paris and London and I'm going to uh pursue my, my practice there to start. That's right. Which is did. a great
1: idea. And when she got there they said, Wow, you're a real deal doctor and you have a medical degree. Here, be a midwife. Yeah. A woman sacra bleu. Yeah, she was uh she was led into midwifery and nursing. Um but she's like really sort of trying to be revolutionary here because all she sees are these men walking around not washing their hands at all. And she's like, you know what is probably super important is personal
0: hygiene and preventative care. And they're like, What's that? Yeah, well they literally were what's that because this was early 1850s and remember our great stink episode oh man that was so good so they were still operating under the miasma theory that it was like bad vapors and smells that made you sick crazy so her idea that it was like that hand washing was part of this preventative medicine was really ahead of its time and so in in addition to being a woman who they were just discrediting out of hand anyway just for being a woman, they were also saying, like, you're talking kooky stuff. Everybody knows it smells that make you sick, you nut job. (laughs) Go over there and deliver a baby.
1: And she's like, but I haven't washed my hands. like, we just told you. It doesn't matter. Babies are dirty.
0: (laughs) As long as your hands don't stink, it's fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we should also mention uh, it's right about here where she lost sight in her left eye
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, from an accident that I can barely even talk about.
0: Oh, I want to. Can I please? So she contracted purulent ophthalmia, which is you an can infection. Stop there. Which is an infection of the eye, oh, and gosh. her eye became infected because Uh-oh. she was tending to an infant who, I guess, had uh, some sort of wound that was infected, and pus squirted in her left eye oh. from the infection, and infected her left eye to such a terrible degree that she became blind in her left eye.
1: Yes, from and that the is pus. That is sad. Uh, but really sad because she was not able to become a surgeon, which is what she
0: really wanted to do. It's also sad that there was a baby with an infection. Well, sure. A pussy infection. Let's not forget about that baby. Sure. Uh, And that baby (laughs) grew up to be Roy Cohn. (laughs) She
1: she moved to the, that's really good. Um, She moved to the UK then from Paris, and this is where she hooked up with a little buddy named Florence Nightingale.
0: Yeah, who deserves her own episode, too, for oh, sure. Oh,
1: totally. They became good friends. They were like, you like to wash your hands? I do, too. Isn't it awesome?
0: <laughs> Let's go do it together.
1: That's kind of the long and short of it. They sat around and sang ABCs or I Don't Want No Scrubs, Wash their hands, and they were both like, why are none of these men doctors ever washing their hands? And they were both like, because they're dummies.
0: Yeah. Just give them a few years and germ theory will be developed, and then they'll listen to Louis Pasteur, not yeah.
1: us. Exactly.
0: But I think that's pretty awesome. It's almost like, um, I don't know, Einstein and somebody else meeting, you know? Like, just it's cool to know that these, these two, like, legendary figures met and were friends at one point in time. Oh, totally. It's almost like a movie, you know what I'm saying?
1: It sh- This totally should be
0: a movie. I'm surprised it's not yet. Agreed. Maybe Jason Reitman could direct it.
1: That's right. And maybe... Uh, uh, Paul Rudd? No. uh, Who's the guy that Wolverine? (laughs) Hugh Jackman.
0: Yeah, maybe Hugh Jackman can be in it. He would play um, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell.
1: That's right. And Jared from Subway can play the the puss baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everything (laughs) would come full circle and the universe would collapse in on itself. And then
1: a Sharknado would kill them all. Yeah. Oh, man. So she uh, is pals with Lawrence Nightingale. She decides, you know what? I'm going to go back to New York. Uh, it's eighteen fifty one, and I really want to get a practice going there. Um, she got back, and of course, discrimination against uh, women in the the doctoring industry was still there. Oh yeah. So she didn't have a lot of opportunity. She didn't have a lot of patients. She didn't have a lot of other doctors that she could even exchange ideas with. Um, and so she started applying for jobs instead of starting her own practice at the women's department. Uh, in a big city dispen- uh, dispensary, but she was not. Uh, she was not hired.
0: No, and I had to look up a dispensary. Is it like a charity or public clinic? So this woman's amb- ambition, yeah, this am- this woman's ambition, this first woman doctor in the United States. Now, um, her ambition was to help the poor. That was that was what she wanted to do. Her 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 missions in life were to help the poor help women retain their chastity and purity mm-hmm. in the hopes of um, having a, a good moral impact on the world around them, and then to make it so that more women could become doctors. That's and right. like She was like a tireless fighter and champion of all of these things. That's right. And so, in typical Elizabeth Blackwell fashion, when she was turned down for a job at a dispensary, she just opened her own dispensary.
1: That's right. And a little single rented room. Uh, She saw patients a few afternoons each week. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was incorporated in 1854, where they moved to a small house uh, there on the lower East Side, East Village area of Tompkins Square. Uh, Her sister, we mentioned that she followed, I believe at the very beginning, that she followed in her sister's footsteps. Mm -hmm. By this point, she was Dr. Emily Blackwell. She got her degree at Western Reserve University in Cleveland, and she joined her in 1856. With uh, another doctor, Dr. Marie, ooh, ha, Zach, uh, uh, Zach Zuska? <laughs> wow. That's the,
0: that's the Dr. Seuss pronunciation. That's a tough one. I would say Zach, Zach Zrevska. Okay. Zach Zrevska.
1: All right. And they all opened the New York Infirmary for Women and Children uh, on Bleecker Street there in the West Village <clears throat> in 1857.
0: Yep, and now you can go left out of the doorway and hit a swatch store. I knew or knew you were going to say the that. Street and see, <laughs> a, and go get a sandwich at Le Pain Quotidien.
1: I saw the swatch joke coming because I did the old Google Earth too. And I was like, I mm-hmm. guarantee you that poked out to Josh.
0: <laughs> but what's crazy, so 64, at least as far as the Google company is concerned, there is 64 none. Bleecker Street doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But that means that it was subsumed by either um, the Kith clothing or the the uh, swatch store. Somebody took over this. But there's a. I think the swatch store did it in 1858. There's a um, yeah, they were all on chains, right <laughs> um, but the, uh, the the there's a there's a physical structure that's still there that was the first um, women run infirmary uh, or clinic, I should say, in New York and what became one of the first um, women's medical schools, amazing. In the country, not the first, but one of the first. Um, and there's no plaque. There's no sign. There's no nothing. Really? But the building is, that. not that I could see, but the building is still there. You can still visit the spot where poor people went and Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell treated them. Wow. Yeah, with one eye. Yeah,
1: let's not forget or, that.
0: A sight in one eye, I should say. So
1: she starts going, she's like, I want to do this in England too, my home country. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me. I'm going to go back and forth. I'm going to try and raise some money. Uh, to do the same thing over there. Um, at the same time, she's also taking on, and it's amazing what you can do when you don't get married and have to be subservient to a man. Right. Like, she was living single, so she had nothing but time.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: You know, she had this this adopted daughter, but I, I imagine as she grew, she helped her mom out with this stuff.
0: Yeah, and in their off time, they would watch living single together. <laughs>
1: So she was getting on other social reform movements, um, all kinds of things to do with women's rights, uh, family planning, even way back then, uh, hygiene always. Um, did we mention eugenics and how deep she got in that? Do we even know?
0: I looked and I could not see because you would think there'd be people that would say like, oh, Elizabeth Blackwell, but loves her, down, but yeah. listen to this eugenic stuff she's into. I saw basically one of those things where it was this this list was repeated basically in the same order across oh, the right. internet. That means one so person wrote it. So I have no idea how much she was into eugenics, but I do know I did get an impression of her as far as women's rights were concerned. Um, she was a feminist through and through. Oh sure, absolutely a feminist, but she was also. A moralist and a prude, a yeah. dyed-in-the-wool prude, and so she was really concerned with the um, the the moral purity. Um, pu- yeah, I guess the moral purity of women, because her her whole thing was if a if a woman has basically had sex out of wedlock she has corrupted her morals. She's traded in her morals. And now she's going to be interested in men. She's going to think about other men rather than her husband. Mm -hmm. She's not going to be able to focus on her home. And so the home will start to come apart because this woman had sex out of wedlock before she got married or whatever. And so that's one home broken. And if more and more women do this, then all of a sudden the whole country's Um, morals are corrupt and there there's nothing but crime and and drinking and all sorts of horrible things that come out of it and she definitely identified men as a aggressor in this that it was definitely men who came along and like persuaded girls to have sex out of wedlock because these girls were not too naive to know the Mm -hmm. ramifications and consequences so she tried to in books and pamphlets and lectures and all this warn mothers to warn their their daughters away from men like this and also teach them about the consequences of having like premarital sex and also basically identifying as you know men as as the the aggressors the wolves in the situation but so she was super into that and she was very widely and well received because her line of thinking was very in line with victorian super rigid morals yeah but um at the same time i mean it, it it it's it's difficult to reconcile with just straight-ahead feminism that you know of the the type that we're used to today. But there's really no one who could who could discredit her as a feminist. No, She's just I mean a feminist in yeah. a Victorian way.
1: It, exactly. It was a time where you couldn't be like, "Girl, own your sexuality,"
0: Mm-mm. and
1: like you asked the man to marry you. Like that just didn't happen at all. So.
0: This was the opposite of that which she was touting. She was also what would be known today as a feminist for life, a staunch anti-abortion feminist. As a matter of fact, if you read her diary in a certain way, you can make the case that one of the reasons she became a doctor is because she read an article about a woman uh, who was an abortionist at the time uh, who was termed a female physician, which I guess was code for women abortionists uh, back then. And she... Uh, was so appalled by this that she wanted to reform the term female physician to mean uh, an actual like just a, a woman doctor a general doctor um and that's one of the things that drove her too so hmm. um yeah she was a very complicated character well, she was I think a Quaker. she reminds us right but i think she reminds us that over time when you become a legend the uh, You know, a legend grows up around you and, and, you know, the different edges get, you know, smoothed over or, or overlooked or whatever. And, and people are complicated and complex and that's the way that it should be and they should be understood as such, you know. But, yeah. But it, none of that under, undermines her, depending on your, your way of thinking. I don't think anything undermines her. That she did or thought undermines the the work that she did and the good that she did.
1: Well, of course not. And I think maybe people should try to remember what it might be like to be a trailblazing feminist in the 1840s through the 80s, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the Civil War, that was very nicely said. Good job. I hope so. Oh, God. I hope (laughs) so. Uh, Civil War rolls around. Uh, She and her sisters train nurses for the union uh, for their hospitals. She said, "You know what? What we really need is a medical school for women." Um, and so she continued to try and get support from Britain. Uh, she finally raised enough backing in America to add that medical school to her women's hospital in New York in 1868. Uh, this was this one you were talking about. Mm-hmm. The um, the New York Infirmary was finally established with 15 students, uh, nine faculty, and she was the professor of hygiene and her sister Emily <laughs> the was fine the hygiene yes <laughs> taught uh was the well taught uh obstetrics and diseases of women
0: yep she handled all of the surgery too at the uh clinic oh Emily did yeah because her sister couldn't right but um so think about this like she established not just this um this uh this clinic this dispensary but also a college to teach women doctors mm-hmm. right and not only did she do that in New York, she did it in London, too. After after she had managed to establish this, she said, Okay, Emily, you got this. I'm, I'm moving back to, to England, and I'm going to do this over here.
1: Yeah, and what it did was it provided a, about a 32-year stopgap uh, until 1899 when medical schools, Cornell University, um, finally began accepting uh, women into their program. So for 32 years, she was running the show and she was providing that, um, I almost said service, but it kind of is in a way, you know, until medical, until mainstream medical schools began catching on.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And, um, the, the, the fact that, that she was establishing this college, like that this was one of her big dreams and, and focuses and drives, just kind of goes to underscore the fact that like she she was trying to make it so that more women could become doctors yeah and that's just it's just easy to overlook when you 're like, oh, well, she went and became a doctor herself and then she did doctoring. She also simultaneously was trying to mm-hmm. expand access to um, medical training for women as well to become a licensed physician
1: and she did in a big way um, in eighteen sixty nine when she was in her late forties she uh this is when she established the london practice Mm -hmm. Um, she had passed on the new york medical college to her sister at that point and founded the national health society in 1871 and was one of the the first champions of prevention is better than cure um, which is a very obviously important thing today in all of medicine but at the time it was kind of a revolutionary uh, kind of way to go about things they were all about cures and she was one of the first people standing up and be like hey Let's not get to the point where we need to cure by preventing things with hand washing and lifestyle and hygiene.
0: Yeah. Wash your hands. Yeah. What's your problem?
1: Uh, In 1870, she finally set up a private practice in London. And in 1874, along with physicians Sophia Jex Blake and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, established that London School of Medicine for Women.
0: Yeah. So again, she did this in New York. She also did it in London. She agitated for legislation to be passed in 1876 to allow women to get medical degrees. Um, she was the first woman added to the medical register in uh, England. Um, so she did this on two continents. She opened up the, the door for women to become doctors on two different continents at about the same time. And, um, Ultimately, she stopped had to stop practicing. She had to stop seeing patients um, because she had something called biliary colic, mm-hmm. which is where a gallstone blocks the the bile duct, which is not good for you. Um, and it apparently is a very painful condition. And especially back then, before they could do a lot with it or mm-hmm. say so break it up with lasers or something, sure, it could knock you out of out of your career. and it did for for decades. I think she had biliary colic. Um, twenty or thirty years before she died
1: yeah she um, she basically she didn't it. practice for the last twenty years yeah uh and very sadly, in nineteen o seven at uh, the ripe old age of eighty six which is great mm-hmm. um she had an accident, she fell down a flight of stairs and was mentally and physically disabled after that, lived a few more years after that, uh and then eventually died of stroke in nineteen ten
0: yeah and that was that. great great lady yeah there's a statistic here in 1881 so she'd moved to the uk permanently in 1869 in 1881 there were only 25 registered women doctors in england and wales but 30 years later 1911 it was up to 495 there you have it now i would guess that there's at least double that <laughs> probably more <laughs> probably so So hats off to Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. Um, Way to go.
1: My bonnet is off and under my seat.
0: Oh, that's a fine phrenology. You've just exposed there, Charles. Thank you. Uh, If you want to know more about Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, there's a lot of good stuff on the internet, including uh, a site that we used, among others, FamousScientists.org. Check them out. And scientists is plural. I just have a thick tongue, so sometimes it's tough to add that extra (laughs) S at the end. (laughs) And since I said I have a thick tongue, it's time for listener mail.
1: Uh, this is from Isaac. Hey, guys. I am on day two of six weeks of staying home and quarantine. I live in okay. Seattle, Washington, which was the place where the first North American coronavirus case was. There have been rumors at my school, I'm in the seventh grade, that it would close for cleaning, but six weeks is nearly all of third quarter. Yeah, I've got a long stretch of time ahead of me, and I've spent most of that time Playing video games, great. Reading, great. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And listening to stuff you should know. Nice. That's a nice three-pronged approach. Little fun, little knowledge, and little goofy knowledge. Sure. Uh, I listened to nearly 10 episodes today alone. Wow. There will be plenty more rushing through my ear holes. So I wanted to say thank you for helping me through a worrisome time. I loved The Seattle Show. That is from Isaac, Isaac, buddy, glad we're there for you. Hang in there. Be safe. Uh, Wash your hands. And the fact that you use the word ear holes means that you're the coolest kid I know.
0: Yeah, you're pretty cool, Isaac. We appreciate that. I wonder what video game he's playing, Chuck.
1: I don't know. I just finished Red Dead Redemption and now I'm on to a new one. I've been gaming a bit lately.
0: I heard that Red Dead Redemption is like one of the most amazing games ever, but it's just so good and and highbrow like a Jason Reitman film that it's, (laughs) it's boring. Unlike a Jason Reitman film. Mm, I didn't mind it. Have you boring. heard that?
1: Well, I, I played part two. I did not get the first one, although I might go I back to I think it was part two
0: one. that I'm talking about. I enjoyed it. Okay, good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Because I like to think that things that are well done aren't boring, you know?
1: Yeah. I had to learn to shoot animals, and which was not fun. But no. hunting is a part of it. Really? Yeah. I never shot I a bunny, though.
0: Maybe you had to like, put them out of the misery or something because they were rabid.
1: Oh, that too. If you have a... If you crash your horse, you might have to do the right thing, you know what I mean? Is that right? You have yeah. to strangle it? Yeah, it's very sad cuz you get very attached to these horses.
0: I'll bet. Uh, do you name them?
1: Yeah, you name them.
0: Like you actually name them for fun or like they come with names or they like the game makes you name your horse?
1: When you go to a stable, you can upgrade your horse in a lot of ways with the saddles and stuff and then you Ring. can also you can also name your horse when you go to a stable and type it in and then your horse name is up there. Did you name any, Josh? I did not. I feel bad now. I had three or four horses, and I named them all variations of my wife and daughter's names. But oh, I'll tell you fine, what, buddy. Fine. You'll be next.
0: I appreciate that. But <laughs> well, you'll be like, oh, yeah, Josh turned lame. I guess I have to put him out of his misery. Yeah, Josh got run over by a train. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how Josh turns out, okay, in video game <laughs> I will. One. Okay. Uh, and Isaac, thanks again for writing in. And like Chuck said, stay safe, stay smart, uh, and uh, wash your hands and don't panic. Doesn't sound like you are. Uh, if you're like Isaac and you're hanging out listening to stuff you should know, we want to hear from you. You can send us an email, wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com.
1: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today.